Amen. Good morning, church. You know, as I was sitting there just listening to the voices, it kind of just made me think about what heaven would be like when a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are before the throne of God Almighty singing, holy, 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 how great thou art. What a day that will be. We praise God. Would you, in this moment, would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, your word says great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And so, Father, we come into your presence now, having sung of your praises, having magnified your name, God. We lift up your name, and we pray now that you would be with us as we open your word. Father God, incline our hearts to fear your name. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Be with us now, O oh God. Help us, Lord. Would you, would you help us by your spirit to understand your words and then to having understood your word to go out and live it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, you know, as you think about this world, there are so many different things in this world that motivate people. So many things that unite people together. And usually what unites people is the same thing that motivates people. A team's desire to win a championship or, well, nowadays it's really a team's desire to see how much money they can get, but in any regard, they come together and they say, you know what, we want to win this thing. And so now that focuses, that unites them toward a common goal. Or maybe uh, a mother and father's loved one for their, for their children. That, that, that focuses them, it unites them in how they live their lives because, they, because of their love for the, the child, for the children. Maybe a business organization that wants to see their profit margins grow. So, man, if it means later hours, okay, no problem. We all have that common goal. They're focused on and united by a common goal. All of these things and many others unite people together. And the reason is because in each example, there is that common goal. There is that common motivation. And this common motivation greatly influences how people act, what they do or don't do, as it were. Because they have a single-minded focus around a particular thing, it shapes how they live. Church, this morning, the same is true for the Christian. The thing that unites believers is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the very thing that should motivate everything we do. And as we live for the gospel and its furtherance in the world, this creates a, it creates a unique fellowship that we share with one another. Our love for Jesus and his gospel is what should drive our love and affection for each other. In our text, we, we see it. The gospel motivated everything that Paul did and he had the privilege of starting a church that felt the same way about the gospel as he did. 
And what I want us to consider this morning as we open the word of God is whether or not we are motivated by the gospel. And if so, is it evident in how we, how we conduct ourselves, how we love, how we are united? Is it evident to others in this world? So let's look at our text this morning. Again, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. And so this morning I want to do two things. I want to look at the greeting that Paul gives to this church. And then I want to look at the prayer that Paul offers for this church. And so right away when you, when you read the letter uh, of Paul to the Philippians... Paul refers to himself right up at the top of the letter. It's interesting how he, how he refers to himself, the title he gives himself. In other letters, Paul is saying that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he certainly is, no doubt about it. And it's interesting that if you look at, for instance, the letter to the Galatians, it's, this is a church that is in disarray. They are, they are believing a different gospel. And Paul it comes with this sort of authority. I, I Paul, an apostle of Christ. It's same thing in Corinth. He comes with this authority of his, of his position. But in our text this morning, Paul, Paul refers to himself and Timothy as servants. Of all the titles Paul could have used to describe himself, he chooses servant. And this is important because it will sort of set the tone for this apostle, for this epistle rather. Paul will later lay out one of the most powerful Christological statements in the New Testament, paralleled only by his statement in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, where there he speaks of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. But in Philippians, he will say that the very mind of Christ has at its core service. Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he did this to meet the most paramount need that sinful humanity has, namely salvation from God's wrath against sin. So right at the outset of the letter, Paul identifies himself as a servant, not just of anybody. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. And, you know, when we read the greetings in in the epistles, it's so easy to sort of just gloss by that introduction. But there's so much there. Because for us, church, we also are followers of Christ. We are also his servants. We need to have the same mind as our Lord had, and and look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, which is an idea that Paul will develop later as we move through the book of, of, of Philippians, through this letter. But it's so important that we realize that Paul has a very warm and and tender uh, uh, disposition towards this church. And so he addresses them. He doesn't feel the need to assert himself as an apostle to this church. He certainly is that. Of all the titles he could have chosen, he chose servant. But look at the next word there, saints. Who is he writing to? This letter is written to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The word saints means set apart ones or consecrated ones. It comes from the word hagios, which means holy. These are holy ones. Paul is writing to people who have been set apart or dedicated to God, as it were. And church, we are not holy in and of ourselves. We are holy because we are in Christ Jesus. And this letter was, it was written to the, to the church at Philippi who, who have been redeemed by the cross work of Christ. We, we don't have any holiness here, but yet Paul, Paul calls this church saints. And when you think of that word saints, you'll, you'll sometimes think of those who've been canonized, you know, Mother Teresa or, or such and so forth. And then you look at your life and you say, well, man, saint, wow. But when you realize what God has done through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are indeed a saint if you are in him. And so Paul includes in this letter the the overseers and deacons in his greeting. And the overseers refer to men who have been tasked with with the spiritual oversight of the congregation and shepherding the flock of God. The deacons refer to individuals who have been entrusted with the practical matters of service within the congregation. In short, this letter was for everybody, the the leadership and all of the people. Paul was writing to the entire church. He probably mentions the overseers and deacons because they would have been responsible to read the letter to the rest of the saints. But next, look look at the next thing that Paul commends to this church. He says, grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul gives his standard blessing. This is standard for Paul to say this, but we shouldn't just gloss over that blessing. Grace is God's special and unmerited favor, while peace refers to harmonious relations and and tranquility. Homer A. Kent Jr., he says, God's grace is his favor, 
needed by men in countless ways and bestowed without regard to merit. We don't merit our salvation by our actions. It is a gift of God. Peace is the inner assurance, he continues, and tranquility that God ministers to the hearts of believers and keeps them spiritually confident and content in the midst of turmoil. But notice the order. It's grace, then peace. And this is significant because we cannot experience the peace of God without having first experienced the grace of God. The fact that we have received the unmerited, undeserved favor of God in Christ is exactly why we can have peace with God in our lives now. It is by God's grace. And then that grace enables us to have peace with God. Why? Because we've been made right with God. We've been saved by grace through faith. And having been saved in this way, we have the peace that comes from God. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And what's interesting is Jesus says this knowing that in a few short moments he will be handed over to the authorities to be tried and tortured and crucified. And yet he says, my peace I leave with you. Church, when the, when the trials of life come, and they will come, we need to be reminded of the peace of God that springs from the very grace of God. This was the blessing that Paul commended to the saints at Philippi. And we, as the saints in North Miami, need to thank God for his grace and live in his peace. We need to thank God for his grace and live in the assurance that we are indeed saved, that we have that salvation. And it should bring us the peace and tranquility that regardless of what's going on in the world around us, our God has saved us and we will one day be with him. And so that's the greeting. But now I want to move into Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And there are three things that I want us to notice about Paul's prayer. Number one, Paul's prayer is manifested with thanksgiving and joy. It is manifested with thanksgiving and joy. Secondly, it is motivated by partnership in the gospel. And then thirdly, it is made with a request for love. So again, it is manifested with thanksgiving and joy, motivated by partnership in the gospel, and made with a request for love. So let's, let's unpack this. Paul immediately makes known the fact that he is thankful to God for the Philippian believers. Every time he thinks of or remembers them, he's thanking God. And again, Paul does this throughout his epistles. He does it in Colossians. We have not ceased praying for you. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in Romans. This is standard of Paul to do this. Every time he does this, every time he thinks of or remembers this church, this particular church, the church of Philippi, he prays for them. But notice that it's not a begrudging task for Paul or a burden for Paul to pray for these people. He has very good reason to do so. He has, 
he has very good reason to be joyful about it. He prays for them with joy. And it's not without good reason. There's a reason why Paul is praying with joy for this church. It's because this church had been overwhelmingly supportive of his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. On more than one occasion, they provided for his financial needs. You can look at 2 Corinthians 11.9 or flip right over to chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 14, uh, 15 and 16. He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. By the way, this was the very first church that Paul started on his second missionary journey. Paul has a very warm feeling, a very affectionate uh, disposition towards this church. So he prays for them joyously. It's not a burden for him to do that. We, we, we even see in that verse I just read that Epaphroditus, who was a part of the Philippian church, was sent by that church to Paul, which, by the way, Paul is writing while in prison, and he's joyful. Epaphroditus goes and, and, and provides this, this love gift, this financial support to Paul. And Paul is very thankful about that. They provide for his financial needs. But what's interesting is, is that much like today, there was a stigma and a shame to being imprisoned. And when the church at Philippi found out about it, they could have abandoned him. But instead, they stood with him in solidarity and continued to support him. And this support and provision, no doubt, was certainly one of the main reasons. It was certainly the cause of his joy in prayer, but it wasn't the primary reason why he prayed with joy. So what was the main reason? Why could Paul, whenever he thought of this church, whenever he remembered them, pray for them, thank God for them, and be joyous about it? Why, why is that? It was because of what this support represented to the apostle about the church's commitment to the gospel. That's why Paul was joyous in his prayer and thankful to God. But before we unpack that, I think that there's an important note about prayer that we need to consider. It's important to note that prayer for other believers was a regular practice for Paul. Is that us? Are we committed to lifting up our brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer? You know, when we say things like, you know, I'm praying for you, or I've been praying for you, or, you know, we just need to pray. Are we saying these things because we think they sound spiritual? Well, that's the spiritual thing to say. Or are we saying them because, one, we really believe in the power of prayer, and two, we're actually doing it. Paul was thankful for this church, and it was his joy to pray for them. We need to make sure that we are praying for Christians, not only in our congregation, but abroad, out in the world, there are believers around the world who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, and we need to continue to lift them up in prayer. So this prayer that Paul makes, it was, it was manifested in thanksgiving and joy. Paul was thankful to God, and he was joyous about this church. But 
also notice that this, this prayer was motivated by partnership in the gospel. Look at what he says here. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayers with joy because. Why is Paul making his prayer with joy? The word he says here, Paul tells us, verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word partnership here, when Paul says this, this partnership, right, because of your partnership, that's an important word for us to consider. I think it gives us an insight into the apostles' joy. The word partnership there is koinonia, and it means fellowship or participation. It, it carries the sense of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group. I remember when four, uh, 15 years ago, we went to Costa Rica, 2004, never been on a missions trip before. And it was awesome, life-changing. As a, a youth pastor says, we're going to go, we're going to build a house, Pastor Dave. We're going to build a church. And we went there to do that. And as, as enjoy, the, the, the joy that we had in that, about being with one another, having our friends there, it was, it was a wonderful time. But looking back on it now, the thing that motivated us was the fellowship that we had in what we were doing. We were motivated by the gospel. We were motivated by a common goal. And that influenced how we, we acted. I, me I remember one night, there was, uh, it rained. And there was a part of the roof that couldn't, you know, it had to be fixed. And, I mean, every, this is after a full day in the hot sun of working, roof it needed to be repaired. And, you know, there was an elite group of men. I wasn't a part of that group. But, they, and, and, they, and they said, guys, we need to, uh, we need to, we need to get this repaired. This is going to set us back if we don't get this done. It, there wasn't a, a, a pause. There wasn't a delay. It was, let's go, let's get it. Come on, let's do it. No delay, because we were all focused on and motivated by and had the fellowship around the gospel, and that spoke to everything that we did. Our, our prayer time, as Dave told us, guys, your life is but a vapor. Everything that we did on that trip was motivated by the gospel, and there was a fellowship that we had. And it was a privilege to be a part of that. And this is, this is what Paul is saying here. He, you, you, you fellowship with me. We have this partnership in the gospel. And that's why I'm so joyful for what you're doing. That's why when I pray for you, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm glad, exceedingly happy about it. I mean, don't get it wrong. The financial support was greatly appreciated. But what it represented was even more precious to Paul. It represented the Philippians' commitment to the furtherance of the gospel. They proved this by their continued support of Paul, and this brought him great joy. But joy is an interesting word to use or term to use for someone who was in prison awaiting the certainty of imminent death. The fact that the church was as serious about the gospel as Paul was caused him to have joy even in that circumstance, even as he was chained to a Roman guard, the imperial guard, night and day. And we'll see next week how that very situation actually helped advance the gospel. But he has joy 
because he knows that while I'm in chains, they're still supporting me. They're still serious about and committed to the gospel. The church was as serious as Paul was. Paul and the Philippian Christians were unified in their fellowship or participation in getting the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the world. And notice that this wasn't an inconsistent partnership, right? An on-again, off-again kind of thing. No, Paul says, from the first day until now. This, as I mentioned earlier, was the first church that Paul started on his second missionary journey, which roughly would have been around 51 A.D., depending on how you date that. Some believe it was 48 A.D., others 51. But 10 years later, based on a writing date of 61 A.D., as Paul is sitting in prison writing this, this church still had Paul's back. They were still with him. And I think that's important for us to consider because, church, we are on the same team. And the joy of being unified in the furtherance of the gospel should motivate our prayers and actions as it did Paul's. We're not divided. The same blood that was shed for your sin is the same blood that was shed for my sin. The same bread that we eat of is the body of Christ represented in that. We drink of the same cup. We are unified. And so the gospel should unify us. It should bring us joy as we see it furthered in the world. And that should motivate how we pray, how we act. Notice that this commitment to the gospel leads Paul to be certain about something. He's very clear. Namely, the salvation of the Philippian believers. Look at what he writes in verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The good work Paul is referring to here is not the financial and spiritual support this church provided for Paul, though that was important. He is referring to the work of salvation that was initiated by God and will be brought to full consummation by God. The support shown to Paul by this church was simply evidence of that. It was evidence that God had indeed begun a good work in them. This church was saved under Paul's preaching. You look at Acts chapter 16 where in that text, Lydia comes to know the Lord. The Bible says the whole, God opened her mind to understand what Paul was saying. The Philippian jailer came to know the Lord. They were saved under Paul's preaching of the gospel. They continued to partner with Paul in getting the gospel to other people. And one day, when Jesus comes back, they would be completely glorified as a result of God's gracious act of salvation, which he and he alone began. But let me also note that that's our assurance. Our assurance is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God doesn't half-step. God doesn't start something and then not finish it. And that needs to encourage us and comfort us. If we've truly been recipients of the grace of God, hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, a salvation applied and accomplished by the death of the Son of God, and applied to us by the Holy Spirit of God, that it's all of God. And that should be our assurance as believers. 
because there are all kinds of things that would cause us to doubt our salvation. And we have to be careful. I think that's why it's so important how we live, what we do, what our mind is set on. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But look at verses 7 and 8. They, they provide for us the reason why Paul is certain about what he just said in verse 6. Look at what he says here. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The basis for Paul's feelings or his mindset was the partnership that the Philippians shared with Paul in the gospel. This is what encouraged him. This is what solidified it for him that, yes, indeed, I'm sure of it. God began this work in you and will bring it to completion. These believers occupied a very special place in Paul's heart because even though they were separated by distance, they were not separated by devotion. Theologian Thomas Constable points out, I love this, he says, quote, though many miles separated the writer from the original readers, Paul viewed their relationship as intimate since they shared salvation and their calling to spread the gospel. Their relationship was intimate because of the bonding of the gospel. They shared salvation and they shared in the fellowship of spreading the gospel. I immediately think about Lord of the Rings whenever I think of the word fellowship. The first one where Frodo becomes aware of the fact that he's got to destroy this evil, sinful ring, whatever, and he has to get rid of it. And it dawns on him that he can't do it by himself. And so they call a council together and they say, this will be the fellowship of the ring. And these, these you know, I think there's seven or eight of them, however many, and they all have that single focus, that single task of, of getting rid of this thing. The point there is that there was a fellowship in that, and that fellowship uh, bonded them together. There was an intimate relationship that they, that they had with one another, a unique relationship that they had with one another. The same thing is here. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I, I hold you in my heart. That's not emotionalism. He really regarded them in a very affectionate way. It was as if the Philippians were in prison with Paul because of the bond they shared in the gospel. And the financial gift from Epaphroditus further showed the partnership this church shared with Paul as he defended and confirmed the gospel. Church, I hope we see we are also bound together by the gospel and share an intimate relationship with one another through our salvation. And just as Paul defended and confirmed the gospel, we too are called to that same task. We have the responsibility of defending the gospel against attacks and confirming the gospel. And when Paul writes that, remember he's in prison, probably awaiting trial where he would get the opportunity to do that very thing. Remember, he goes before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And in each of those situations, what does Paul do? Shares the gospel. I think, and I always mix it up, it was either Felix or Festus who says, your, your, your learning has driven you mad. You're crazy, Paul. You're out of your mind. And uh, the other uh, governor says, you know, you almost, I think it, it might have been Herod, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. You, you, you know. But the point there is that 
whether before, and this is exactly in fulfillment of what God said about, or Jesus said about uh, Paul early in Acts. He will be my instrument to go before kings, rulers, and the Gentiles, and he, he's doing that. Just as Paul defended and confirmed the gospel, we too must do that. The gospel, church, is what binds us together. The gospel is what unites us. It's what we have our fellowship in. But then notice that Paul then shares his deep affection and love for this church in verse 8 when he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, honestly, he says, for God is my witness. Honestly, only God could attest to the truthfulness of that statement. God knew how deeply Paul's affection for this church ran. It was as if he was taking an oath before God as to how, how sincere his feelings were for the church that he founded over a decade ago. Not to mention the fact that he compares his love for them with the very love of Christ. Again, Homer Kent Jr., theologian, he points out, it was the indwelling Christ who was producing the fruit of love in Paul by the Holy Spirit and thus enabled him to yearn for their welfare with the compassion of his Lord. He says, I, I yearn for you with the, with, the, with the love and affection of Christ. Do we have that same affection for one another? Not something that is based on emotionalism or sentimentality, but something that is real, something that is based on the gospel, something that is based on our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul holds a warm and, and very deep, affectionate concern for this church. He loves this church. Paul's love and affection for this church was real, and it was motivated by the fellowship they shared in making the gospel known. But finally, let's look at the third aspect of this prayer as we close. The prayer was made with a request for love. Look at verse 9. Paul writes, and it is my prayer. So now Paul is about to tell us why he's praying. He's, he's given us sort of the motivation behind his prayer, right? in terms of the, the, the furtherance of the gospel, why he's glad, why he's joyful. Now he's going to say, he's going to give us the request. What is Paul's prayer request for this church? He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That, that's his prayer request. Paul is praying that this church would love more and more. Notice that Paul is not praying for the church's love to begin or to get started, I'm praying that you'd start loving one another. He's not praying that. He, he's actually saying, no, I want it to be plentiful. I'm pr he's praying that this love would be abundant, that it would be spilling over, that it would exist in large quantities. But also notice that this love is not based on, again, it's not sentimentality. It's not emotionalism. It's not just a feeling. It is a love that is grounded in knowledge and all discernment. It is an intelligent love and a morally discerning love. There is an intellectual awareness to this love that understands the principles of God's word and is able to apply them practically 
to the various circumstances encountered in life. This is the kind of love Paul was praying for. You know, it's, it's not enough for me to be able to understand a biblical truth so that I can explain it. I mean, don't get me wrong. We need to be able to explain and uh, offer up you know, reasons for why we believe. Sure, we need to be able to do that. But it's not enough for me to do that. I must also be living it out in my life. I mean, church, who cares if I can theologically explain to you what forgiveness is if I'm not forgiving? Big deal. Or what holiness is if I'm not living a holy life. You can explain with technical precision these concepts, and yet they are absent from your life. It doesn't matter if you can explain them if you're not living them. And a love that is grounded in knowledge would be able to do that, not only to understand, but also to have uh, perception and, and practicality in living it out. This was Paul's prayer. This is the kind of love that Paul was praying for as they were in partnership for the gospel. This is why in, in verse 10, Paul gives the reason for his request. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The kind of love that Paul wanted his church to grow in would enable them to approve or give a thumbs up to things that really mattered. And you know how it is in the Christian life. There are things that are clearly right and things that are clearly wrong. There are things that are clearly moral and things that are clearly immoral. But then there are those things that, there's that gray area, right? And it's those areas where we need the spiritual sensitivity to navigate. Is this action I'm about to do going to be harmful to others? Is it, is it going to be helpful? Should I offer this rebuke to this person now? Is this the right time? Or should I wait, see how it plays out? Is it wise to do this thing, whatever that is, now? It's not only about doing the right thing. It's also about doing the best thing. And that's important. And that's not always easy to, to establish. Friday, my son, Caleb, bursts into my office. Daddy, man. I've got something that's going to make you and I happy. Oh, boy. What do you got? He pulls out a crisp $20 bill. He had found it over by the gym and was saying, this is his Nerf gun money. He was so excited about it. I said, yeah, man. Oh, wow, buddy. Great. Big smile. You know, he's missing one tooth now, so he's got, he's got that smile. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, man. Church, I'd be lying to you if I said that I didn't want him to keep that money. <laughs> I wanted him to. I told him as much. But because here's the thing. It, I don't think it necessarily would have been wrong for him to keep the $20. I mean, but what am I saying to him? Man, son, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Sorry for whoever. Way to go, dad. And then you, you think about what Jesus says, you know, and what the Bible teaches about, you know, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I said, Caleb, what if you lost $20? How would you feel? You see, it's about doing the best thing. The best thing there is to take that money back 
And again, I'm not saying this. I think God actually let this happen so that I could speak on it right now. I'm not saying this to big up or myself or whatever. This really happened. But it's about doing the best thing. As much as I wanted him to keep it, we had to go back, give it to the school office. But that requires discernment there. And that's a small, minor situation. Think about the complex situations that we face in this life that require love, a, 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 a love that is grounded in knowledge of God's word and is able to appraise reality with truth. The truth of the matter is that cir circumstance with my son enabled me to have a great conversation with him about what makes God happy. And it was awesome. But there's that gray area. It's not always right, readily available or seen. But notice that Paul references the day of Christ, and, and he has it as his goal behind how we live and make decisions now, right? If, if our decisions are made with love that is grounded in knowledge and discernment, we will be able to stand pure and blameless on the day of Christ. I mean, remember what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.10. He said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is why in the previous verse, he makes it his aim to please Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is not condemnation. It's evaluation. Remember, that's for the believer. And so when we stand there and having, been, uh, having a life characterized with this kind of love, Paul says here, he says that this, this love, you, you will be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This kind of love enables that to happen as we live it out. It's not saying that you're perfect immediately, uh, actually, right now, and you're going to do it. But as we begin to, and this is why Paul prays it, that this love would abound more and more. Well, finally, church, notice the righteousness. Notice that this life of righteousness does not come from us. Paul says in verse 11, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, and I don't want us to miss this, lives that are characterized by love that is abounding in knowledge and discernment will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. They will be. But this fruit comes from Jesus Christ, which is made manifest in us by the Holy Spirit. As a result, all the praise and glory goes to God, the one who started the work in us and the one who will bring it to completion. Church, we need to be a praying church. Paul did that. We need to be a church that is motivated by getting the gospel out, furthering it. That should motivate us, influence everything we do. But finally, we need to be a church that is growing and abounding in an intelligent and discerning love. This will allow us to determine how best to live in this world. And that will ultimately enable us to stand pure and blameless before our Lord and Savior who died so that we might live. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the power 
of his gospel, that he came to this earth and died on the cross for sin and was raised again. God, may that motivate everything we do. May it be at the center of all of our decisions. May we love each other with a love that is grounded in knowledge and discernment. And loving each other in that way, we know, will bring praise and glory to you. Do this now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.